Lead to Win is brought to you by Leaderbox, a monthly reading experience curated by leaders for leaders. Learn more at leaderbox.com. Retired Air Force Captain Ray Brennan was a tall, active 61-year-old who enjoyed collecting seashells. Despite a recent history of heart problems, he set off from his home in Clearfield, Pennsylvania to attend a convention in Philadelphia. When Ray returned home, he felt a bit more tired than usual. Three days later, he complained of chest pain. That night, his lungs began to fill with fluid. Then he suddenly died from an apparent heart attack. Later that week and 150 miles away, Frank Aveni, age 60, died in much the same way. Within days, nine more men, ages 39 to 82 and scattered all over the state, died under the same mysterious circumstances. Headaches, chest pain, high fever, lung congestion, and finally death from an apparent heart attack. All the victims were men, all were veterans, and all were from Pennsylvania. Health officials suspected the worst. An invisible mass killer had been unleashed upon the state, possibly the entire country. Soon, experts identified a connection between the victims. All were associated with the same convention that Ray Brennan had attended. It was the 1976 American Legion Convention at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia, the first outbreak of what we now call Legionnaire's disease. Experts finally traced the illness to a previously unknown pathogen that spread through the hotel's air conditioning system. In all, 221 people became ill and 34 died. We can all hope we steer clear of Legionnaire's disease, but there's another equally mysterious illness that affects countless men and women each year, and probably you too. It begins with another set of predictable symptoms. Fatigue, headaches, irritability, sleeplessness, worry, and exhaustion. What is this invisible threat? It's the stress caused by constantly trying to do more, but accomplishing less. Every year, thousands of people try to alleviate this condition by producing more and more output, but it just doesn't work. Despite working longer hours, we get less done. And as our level of investment rises, productivity plummets until finally we experience burnout. After the discovery of Legionnaire's disease in 1976, countries all over the world adopted new regulations for climate control systems to prevent the spread of this deadly illness. That's not the case with the second illness. Rather than restructure our lives to prevent burnout, we continue the same old pattern that produces the same old symptoms, even though we know the cause of the problem. So here's the question. Are we finally ready to admit the high cost of overwork? Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt-Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work, succeed at life, and lead with confidence. In this episode, we're going to talk about productivity, and we'll expose the fallacy that you can accomplish more by simply working harder. And I'll show you exactly what this approach is costing you and what to do about it. Yeah, 
so dad, I'm really excited about this episode. In fact, this is the first of three episodes on productivity, a little mini series, if you will. Um, And this week we're talking about the problem because it just seems like we're working harder and harder, but actually accomplishing less. And you've identified three unseen costs of this approach because the truth is there's something at stake here. It's not just um, that it's inefficient. I mean, there's, there's something bigger and more important that we need to come to grips with when we think about this issue. Yeah, so true. Because I think when we think about productivity, we just think about you know tweaks, hacks, strategies right. to be more productive. It never uh, occurs to us to question the underlying assumptions. But once we get our head around these costs, yeah. I think it forces us to ask the right questions. Right. Instead of just how do we pedal faster? Exactly. <laughs> so cost number one is missing out on life by overworking. It's so easy to think, you know, that that the situation is temporary. If I just work a little bit harder right now, yep. then I can enjoy some time off. I can take that vacation. You know, I can take a long weekend or whatever. But the truth is, there's always more to do, mm-hmm. right? And so there's like no end to it. And working harder doesn't make you more productive. In fact, studies routinely show that productivity goes down dramatically after 50 hours per week. Hmm. Now, I know what you're thinking out there. Those of you that are listening to this, well, you're the exception, right? You can work (laughs) 60, 70, 80 hours a week and somehow still be productive. Right. But no, you can't. Your productivity is going to go down after 50 hours of work. Mm -hmm. Now, there's this thing called the productivity paradox that was identified in the 70s and the 80s. But basically, companies that made a major increase in technology, this is astonishing, companies that made a major increase in technology saw a decrease in productivity growth. What? Now, we have this thing called the Full Focus Planner, and this isn't an ad for it, but it's an analog planner, an old paper planner. And we are selling them like hotcakes. We can't keep them in stock. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because people have realized that digital solutions to task management are not increasing their productivity. It puts them in an environment where they're very distracted. And so the technology has actually caused a decrease in their productivity. Mm -hmm. Well, the same holds true for investing more time. Now get this stat. So studies in national productivity show that the Greeks work over 2,000 hours a year on average. I mean, who knew? But somebody studied this. Germans work about 1,400 hours, but are 70% more productive. Hmm. And that's not dissimilar from what we've seen in our coaching practice. Yep. That oftentimes people who put a constraint on the number of hours that they work are actually more productive. Sure. It's a little bit like that day before you go on vacation, <laughs> you're hyper productive. Yes. Like a week's worth of work. That's right. Because you have a constraint day. on it. You just yeah. can't keep working and keep working. Right. So we're actually getting less done by working longer hours. And those hours could be invested in other things that make us more focused, more productive when we're at work. Things like Mm -hmm. leisure, things like rest, learning, family time, all of that. It reminds me of um, a presentation that I was working on last week. And I realized that I had kind of procrastinated and a little more to do than I thought. I thought I just had some tweaks to make, but then realized there were some more substantial edits I needed to make. And we had a late dinner for the business that night and I got back to my hotel and I was going to work on it. Well, I thought I could get it done in about half an hour, but it was probably 1030 when I started. You know, this is a long leisurely dinner that we had. And before I knew it, it was midnight, you know, and it was like everything I did, I kept making mistakes. It just took longer. It was slow. And I think that's a good metaphor for what we're talking about here. There's kind of like a law of diminishing returns where at a certain point, no matter how fast you pedal, 
you're just not getting anywhere. Right. The longer you work, the stupider you get. Yeah. Well, that's how I felt for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So why do you think our culture seems to value overworking? I mean, it's a badge of honor, right? You meet somebody and you say, how you doing? They say, oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I'm so tired. I'm exhausted. It sounds like they're complaining, but they're bragging. It's like the humble brag. But why is there that phenomenon? Well, I think one of the things that's really insidious and something we're not aware of very often is we have no idea what to do when we're not working. And work that's a good point. is easier than whatever's happening at home. You know, it's defined results, it's measurable outcomes, there's a schedule, there are little boxes you can check. And for a lot of people, when they go home or when they have time off, uh, it's easy to drift back into work because, as it turns out, your children and your marriage don't operate on measurable outcomes and checkboxes. Right. (laughs) You know, there's not an app that you can get for that. You actually have to engage, and it's messy and challenging, and you're kind of at loose ends. And I think our tolerance for being at loose ends, for even boredom. Um, studies have shown this as well, that our tolerance for boredom has evaporated. You know, mm-hmm. when was the last time you waited for anything or had any moment of in-between kind of liminal space uh, in your life where you weren't entertained or trying to cram something in? And so I think we just don't know what to do with ourselves. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that um, social media services like Facebook, you right. know, this is one of the dark sides of, of that particular service is that we can get such a quick dopamine hit right. that we don't uh, develop tolerance for boredom right. and we don't stay in these spaces where there aren't the measurable results. But I also think it's behind all that is fear. Mm-hmm. So it's like fear of missing out. right? You know, if I say no to that opportunity, if I say uh, no to that project that maybe I won't be promoted. Mm-hmm. Maybe I won't advance as quickly as I would like. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's just fear of the unknown. I mean, that's really what you were talking yeah. about. You know, I mean, at least at work, things are known. You have clarity you know, and certainty. That's right. I know I know what it takes to get ahead. I know what it takes to complete a project. But at home, there aren't as many checkboxes. Right. You know, it seems uh, very unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And so I think those are some of the reasons why we're willing to overwork mm-hmm. because, and it, and it gives us a sense that we're being productive. It's a false sense of productivity, yeah. but there's a sense that, you know, I'm making a contribution. I'm a right. hard worker. And you probably don't remember this because you were raised in a completely different generation than I was. Maybe you do a little bit, but I was raised where, you know, my dad and mom would say to me coming out of the depression, you know, they would say to me, you know, make yourself busy. Or make yourself useful, right? Right, which meant that that you shouldn't just be standing around. You should always be working. There's mm-hmm. always my my parents would say, and bosses that I would work for would say early on, you know, there's always something to do. You know, find something to do. Make yourself useful. Mm-hmm. And that kind of mindset is something that seeps into our belief system, and we just approach the world that way. Well, I think it, it kind of goes back to the impulse to make a meaningful contribution is good. But when we get to this place of diminishing returns where we're overworking, we're not actually able to make a meaningful contribution to much of anything. You know, our desire for significance is actually thwarted by overworking. And so maybe back then there was a desire to be good stewards of your time, make a meaningful contribution, whatever it could be. Um, But over time, it's just sort of been like fill up your time with busy work and and movement all the time and this kind of frenetic energy that's really counterproductive. It's a little bit like overtraining. 
at the gym. Right. You know, people get all excited and they think, you know, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to finally turn this one pack into a six pack. <laughs> My <laughs> perpetual challenge. But um, but people think that, you know, if they if they just work harder at the gym, then they will produce greater faster results. And mm-hmm. the truth is, rest is equally important. Yeah. In fact, elite athletes will tell you that one of the most important components of their training mm-hmm. and their ability to compete is their ability to rest. And yeah. I'm talking about sleeping nine, 10 hours a night. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it, it's really important. Overworking does not help us in any sphere of life. No, absolutely. Well, I also found a fascinating study by Erin Reed, who's a professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. She found that managers could not tell the difference between employees who actually worked 80 hours a week and those who just pretended to. Hello. <laughs> Reed found no evidence that the pretenders actually accomplished less or that the overworking employees accomplished more. I mean, that's either good news or bad news for you, depending on which side of the <laughs> spectrum you fall on. That is crazy. That's really crazy. The point is, of course, working 80 hours is not helping you out no matter what. No, you may feel better about it. You may notice it, but it's not making a measurable or a tangible impact on the world. Yeah. People are often unaware that they're accomplishing less by working more, but you've developed a free personal productivity assessment yep. to help people measure just how productive they really are. And this is really revealing. I mean, if you want to know how you're doing, not just how you think you're doing, this is going to give you that insight. So This is one of those things I by the way personally take once a quarter. I know. Cuz I if I'm not careful, I'll slip back into the old patterns. Right. It's just helpful to have a pulse on it. Let's hear how this assessment has helped one of our clients, Roy Barberry, diagnose and improve his level of productivity. So, how has a personal productivity assessment helped me to identify my areas of focus? Well, I'm a a husband and a father of 12 children, and I'm also involved in three different businesses. So focus for me can sometimes be in short supply. Um, And one of the tools that I like to use to stay on track is a productivity assessment. It gives me measurable ways to chart my productivity progress in the areas that are, you know, personally most important to me, which currently is, is time with my expanding family uh, we have now have three grandchildren as our older children are having babies. I want to spend time uh, continuing to date my wife. On March the 14th, we'll have been married uh, 30 years, and I think uh, constantly spending time together um, is a big part of that success. And another area is I want to focus on businesses uh, that involve my children and creating those businesses that involve my children and working with our business teams on projects that make a difference for us and for those people that we serve. So the, the assessment has helped me to evaluate how my time is being invested and with whom I'm investing it with. Um, it's helped me to realize that I could and should delegate uh, many more responsibilities to those that I work with and to quite honestly, people who will do a better job at it than I do which creates opportunities for them, but then that gives me the freedom to get clear on my own systems. It gives me space in my calendar, and it gives me the opportunity to decide how I'm gonna manage that new free time. But I don't think we should use the assessment uh, like a bathroom scale when you first go on a, a diet and you're just very zealous and you're trying to weigh yourself every single day. You wanna give yourself enough time to be able to see progress. So that's why I take the assessment um, each quarter. 
So the other question would be, um, how has the assessment helped me uh, improve personally? It's given me the emotional bandwidth um, to where I have something to give back to my wife and my children and the business relationships that are really important to me uh, and hopefully to them as well. It also doesn't hurt that we've been able to greatly expand um, our teams and those businesses, creating opportunities and that our personal income has gone up about 30% over the past 24 months. So again, the first cost is missing out on life by overworking, but there's a second cost. Yep. Poor health due to stress. Now, workplace stress is detrimental to well-being. I mean, it's not something to fool around with. No. I've experienced this firsthand. You have. Yeah. And there are really consequences that can affect every area of our life. Yeah. And too many or conflicting demands produce stress. Mm-hmm. For example, when you're trying to work under multiple deadlines or you've got uh, an overcommitted calendar or you're trying to juggle home and office. I know you're yeah. right in the middle of this. Right. With small kids, you're in the process of trying to move. Are you stressed, Megan? Uh, a little, although I've been sleeping well, which helps. Well, that's good. Probably because yeah. you've been so stinking tired. <laughs> yeah, probably right? so. Yeah, and so f- some of the physical symptoms are things like tension headaches, mm-hmm. rapid breathing. Yep. In fact, one of my son-in-laws had some of these symptoms this weekend, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, increased blood pressure, release of stress hormones like epinephrine and cortisol. Which, by the way, are not your friends over the long haul. No. Gr- great when you're running from a bear. Not right. when you're showing up for work every day. Well, they really have a negative impact on they your do. system over time. Uh, digestive problems, higher cholesterol, decreased, this is the most deadly, decreased libido. <laughs> this is when it's really awkward to have a podcast with your dad. <laughs> Let's keep on going. So 70% of American workers experience stress-related illnesses. That, if you're counting, wow. is the majority of us. Right. right? 70%. You think of all the antacids that are bought mm-hmm. over the counter, all the prescription antacids, all the prescription medications, all the things that are designed to reduce this stress, when instead of doing that, probably what we should be considering is what's causing this stress. Yeah. Right. Okay, I have to tell a story on myself. Okay. This is kind of a good one. Um, so this is probably 12 or 13 years ago. I had moved to a new city. Uh, a lot of things in my life were changing. I had a new job and kind of like a high-pressure sales sort of situation. And I started to experience some physical symptoms, like uh, digestive systems, a lot of um, – discomfort, kind of nauseated all the time. And by the time before I kind of realized what was going on, which turned out to actually be a really serious health problem that was absolutely caused by stress, I was later diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I remember driving to work on a pretty regular basis for several weeks where I would be in my car and in my cup holder would be a bottle of Pepto-Bismol. And my, I had to go to work, you know, like I, I felt like I just, I had to go, I had to perform and I would drink Pepto-Bismol while I was driving down the road from my cup holder, from You've the bottle. You've never told me that story. Really? I am shocked. Seriously. It was, it was so bad. And I mean, some of you are doing this right now, and I'll just tell you, it doesn't end well. Wow. Yeah. How did it end for you? Well, I got deathly sick, um, ended up having emergency surgeries, and 
On one of our vacations. On one of our family vacations. And it kind of took me out of life for about a year of pretty intensive recovery because I was so, so sick. But it was because I was ignoring those early warning signs, which actually predated the Pepto-Bismol, as you might imagine. Uh, I ignored those early symptoms and just thought I could push through and I had to push through, which was the really dangerous thought and wasn't taking care of myself. And it was a, a hard lesson to learn. I have a question about Crohn's disease because mm-hmm. you and one of your other sisters have this. Yeah. Did the stress cause the Crohn's or did the stress aggravate the Crohn's? Well, I, th- I mean, I'm certainly not a doctor, so don't take this to the bank. But what I understand about a lot of inflammatory or autoimmune diseases is that genetically, many of us have a predisposition to certain things. And there are a host of these kind of illnesses that are out there. It seems like they're discovering more all the time. And very often, uh, stressful life events like what I was experiencing are sort of like the tripwire or the thing that takes that um, you know, vulnerability that you might have genetically and lets it run wild. And it's pretty hard to catch when that happens. And that can be true of all kinds of things. But the important thing is you've got to pay attention to those early warning signs and not lie to yourself that you can um, get by without the self-care that you need, not only to perform well at work, but just to live totally. your life. Well, I want to tell you another part of my stress-related one. I've told a lot of times about having these stress-related symptoms and ending up at the cardiologist finally. Right. And he said to me, you know, your heart's fine. That's not it. I thought I was having a heart attack several times. And he said, you know, this is acid reflux. Mm-hmm. Now, what he didn't answer the question was was why there was the acid reflux. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a combination of things like lack of exercise. It was partly diet. But it was also stress. Right. And a lot of times, I was ending up in the ER as a result of a panic attack. So here's the part I haven't told. You've made me brave by going first. <laughs> so the part I had, didn't uh, tell is that about that same time, I started getting therapy. I started meeting with a psychologist. Right. And I told him sort of the presenting symptom mm-hmm. was that I was having panic attacks. Right. And so I was a pretty high level executive at the time I was having these. And I suspected it was kind of related to work, but I wasn't for sure. And so I said, look, I've had these panic attacks. I've ended up in the ER several times thinking I was having a heart attack. He stopped me right there. And he said, about 30% of the men that I see that are your age, and this was Mm -hmm. in my early 50s, have exactly these same symptoms. Wow. They're suffering from panic attacks. They end up in the ER thinking they're having a heart attack. They can't find what the problem is, but it's all, get this, stress-related. I believe it. And I'm sure that's true for professional women as well. And um, man, that's something to really take seriously. Anxiety is- is, It's uh, a clue. Is a clue. Yeah, that's right. And I'll tell you what, as a as a leader, if you're kind of in a constant state of stress and anxiety, your ability to make great decisions, which is a huge part of leadership, is diminished at best. Well, I just want to say, just for a little bit of hope here, yeah. that you don't have to live this way. Right. You know, you don't have to be under this constant sense of overwork and yeah. stress. And I think that most of us Kind of put ourselves in a position of being the victim. Yeah. You know, like this is being done to us mm-hmm. rather than we're doing it to ourselves. And certainly there's those circumstances where we don't have full control. Yeah. But I think we have to own what it is that's driving this. Yeah. You know, is there an underlying lying fear like we were talking about earlier? You know, the fear of missing out, the fear of the unknown. Is there something that's creating this stress that we could own and actually change if we put our mind to it? Yeah. And I think the point of our show today is not to be just a huge 
downer, although this is kind of heavy stuff in some ways. It is. But it's it's meant to be in this series that we're doing, kind of the first part of a wake-up call that will ultimately lead to great solutions for how to improve the situation. But before you can get to solutions or um, you know tips or whatever it is, you definitely have to be honest about how bad yeah. it is. And it's this is an area that you can really lie to yourself in. You can't fix what you don't acknowledge. Exactly. So that's where it starts. Yep. Okay, so before we continue our conversation on the high cost of overworking, I want to pause for just a minute to talk about something that we're really excited here about at uh, Michael Hyden Company. Yeah, I already mentioned the Full Focus Planner, and I said that it wasn't an ad. <laughs> well, this time it is. Yep. Uh, the Full Focus Planner is a paper planner. Yes, a paper planner, analog, <laughs> throwback, but it's designed to link your big yearly goals with your day-to-day tasks. Mm -hmm. And in our consulting and coaching practice, what we found with our clients is they often set goals, but they don't have a way to make those operational. They don't have a way uh, where the rubber meets the road that they can actually put it on their task list and make daily meaningful progress towards their goals. But the Full Focus Planner is designed to help you do that and to keep you productive every day because we've got some other tools that are baked into that that we're going to be talking about in this mini-series about productivity. Mm -hmm. Just a way to make it happen on a daily basis. Okay, so my kids would say that this paper planner thing is old school. You know, my seven-year-old loves to call things old school, which might mean they happened like three years ago. But (laughs) in this case, this is definitely kind of an old idea that is new again. So how did you come to design a uh, physical paper planner? Because you obviously love digital solutions as well. Yeah, I do. I mean, I started using a paper planner solution when I was in college. I went through a whole bunch of them uh, over the course of my career, but then the digital uh, revolution happened. And so I started using a digital calendar, started using a digital task manager, but I discovered that I actually wasn't getting more done. Mm -hmm. I was spending an inordinate amount of time managing my tasks rather than actually getting the tasks done. I found that I was doing it in a in an environment of distraction yeah. where I wasn't focused. And it just kind of blended into everything else that was in my digital landscape or yeah. my digital ecosystem. I kind of think about it like when you go to use something on your phone, you have to machete your way through the jungle to get to the thing that you're yeah. trying to find. You know, you have to make it through the temptation of Facebook and email and text messages and all the other things and notifications till you finally get to that one thing. At least speaking for myself, very often I get distracted and can't even remember what I got on my phone for in the first place. So true. It's like a gauntlet that you have to run yeah. through just to get to the objective. Exactly. And so what the Full Focus Planner does is keeps you focused mm-hmm. on your big objectives, yeah, your big important goals so that you actually make meaningful progress every day. And I will say this, this is, I've, I've never developed a product for which we've had more incredible testimonials yep. of people getting more done achieving more by actually doing less. And that's really the promise of the planner. Well, I have to tell you that I am in love with this planner and I'm not the only one. We hear from people all the time, whether it's we're out and about having lunch or at a coffee shop or on Facebook or somewhere else, just how much people love this. But I think partly that's because it keeps you sane. You know, there's a, an element of certainty that you can just kind of hold in your hands. That you just are going to be focused in this day on the things that really matter most. There's a concept that you teach called the big three, which you can find out more about, um, which we'll tell you in a second on the uh, fullfocusplanner.com site, but it's just a way to be 
focused in your day rather than overwhelmed by tasks. So this is not a way to record, you know, hundreds of tasks. This is a way to simplify your life and it really works. Totally. So just as a practical matter, each of these planners is outfitted for a 90-day cycle. So basically one planner per quarter. Love that. And if you get an annual subscription, you can get four planners a year, one for each quarter, and they're shipped to you automatically. So it's a big deal when you get yep. your planner. You know, it's just a, like we call it an activation trigger, but just a, a prompting to plan that quarter, to identify what you want to accomplish, and then to actually begin to implement that. And that's honestly the best way to do it. It's also cheaper if you get the annual subscription. Now you can buy an individual planner if you want, but both options come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. All you need to do is go to fullfocusplanner.com and pick the option that's right for you. Okay, so just go to fullfocusplanner.com and order an annual subscription or an individual planner to get started. All right, Dad, ready to jump into the third cost of overworking? I am. Again, just for context, cost number two, poor health due to stress, and cost number three, decreased job satisfaction. Mm. Now, it shouldn't really be a surprise that when we work too much, it undercuts our job satisfaction. But there's this false belief, I think, that floats around in our heads sometimes that those who are the most driven are happier at work. You know, we think we're going to get to this place where, I don't know if it's a promotion or a raise or whatever, but that suddenly, magically, the job is going to be more satisfying if we can just work harder for a while. But a recent study by the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence examined the levels of engagement and burnout in over a thousand U.S. employees. And the data showed that 20% of employees reported both high engagement and high burnout. In other words, they were passionate about their work, but also had intensely mixed feelings about it. They reported high levels of interest, stress, and frustration. In other words, they were more likely to think about leaving their Mm -hmm. jobs. Overworking does not make you happier or more satisfied, even if you're passionate about it. Yep. So it's not like these two things have to go together. You can still be passionate. You can still be engaged. But without the frustration that comes from overworking, it just takes some intentionality. It's kind of like saying you're going to still love running once you're once you start pulling muscles, you know, which is the parallel to overworking. <laughs> you know, it's like it might be fun for a few miles, but if you ran 13 miles without training for it or 20 miles without training for it and you start injuring yourself, it becomes painful and your body starts to break down. And totally. the same is true, I think, professionally for us. It's the, the truth is what makes running fun is all the time that you're not running, that you're resting and getting ready to run. And the same is true for work. I think what you do outside of work, what meaningful activities you pursue and meaningful relationships you pursue are really the things that fuel your productivity. And if those are non-existent, which they are, if you're overworking, then your satisfaction with your job or your your business is going to decrease. I, I, I think we need to make a distinction between being passionate about your work and being a workaholic. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Passionate about our work is when we really love what we're doing. Like, I love what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm having the time of my life. I've never had more fun in a job than I have in this one. Yeah. And by the way, I have zero expectation or desire to retire. Yeah. Right? It's not like I hate my job and I'm hoping to get to a place where I can stop and then just do what I love. No, I'm doing what I love. Right. Right? But I can turn it off. Mm -hmm. And workaholism is a compulsion where you can't 
turn it off. Yeah. Well, it's like any addiction. It's not about the thing itself. People don't drink too much because they just love alcohol. They're, you know, wine connoisseurs. They're trying to get something out of that addiction to address another issue that's going on. And I think that's very true for workaholism. Probably you're avoiding some other kind of pain or anxiety in your life that overworking helps you to mask or to medicate. I think that's really true. You know, there's also this um, false hero idea in our culture. You know, I've heard so many people say, I want to die with my boots on or I want to die in the saddle. And it's kind of a, a... bravado or a machismo. Am right. I saying that right? <laughs> I think so. Okay. Uh, but it's it's doesn't correspond with reality. Right. You know, I don't want to die with my boots on. You know, I want to be able to put my boots on, take them off, have this cycle or this rhythm between hard work and really committed rest. Mm-hmm. You know, we just came off a, a week vacation, our whole team yeah. uh, together, and it was amazing. And I think you would say, as I've noticed... That our team seems refreshed, yes. reinvigorated, rejuvenated, excited about being back to work. But that doesn't happen after you've been going at it for weeks on end with no relief, no weekends, no vacations, no rest time. Yeah, absolutely. So apparently about 9% of moms work more than 50 hours a week compared with 29% of dads. And I'm going to be honest, like I kind of bristle at that, you know, at at the beginning, because it seems kind of sexist. Um, But I have a hypothesis about that. Okay. I don't really think... I have one too, but you tell me yours. Okay. I don't really think it's because um, moms are naturally more balanced and working less. I think it's because most moms who are working outside the home have two jobs. And somebody at the end of the day has to pick the kids up from school and make dinner and do the laundry and, you know, all those sign the homework and all those different things. And I think there's probably some residual kind of old uh, gender roles where it's socially acceptable for dads to stay late at work um, or to work on the weekends on, you know, their their professional work while moms just go to job number two, pick up the kids, do the dinner, do all the evening and afternoon weekend kind of stuff. And the truth is everybody's overworking. And if you measured all the work that has to be done both domestically and professionally, that the the statistics would be much more similar. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right about that. And I think that oftentimes women don't get the credit for all the work that, that they do. And I, I think of Gail, my wife, your mom, um, didn't work outside the home, never has worked outside of the home except for about two years uh, when we were first married. But there's no question in my mind that raising you five girls, she worked a lot harder, oh, yeah. more hours than I did. It never ends. It's no. basically from six in the morning till 10 at night or what, whatever your kids' totally. ages are to kind of dictate that. But it's the hardest job there is. I mean, I feel that way even now. You know, sometimes I'll come home to my second job of being a mom and I will think, man, my workday was a lot easier <laughs> than my parenting day. There's nothing harder than raising humans, as it turns out. Well, and it's because of some of the reasons we shared earlier. You know, when you're at work, you can check things off. Right. When you're at home, things don't just get checked off. You know, right. it's like, didn't we just go through this yesterday? Yeah. We keep doing the same things over <laughs> and over again. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's an interesting um, statistic. It is. 
Okay, let's shift focus for a minute. We've been talking about the high cost of overworking, and it can be pretty depressing if I'm stuck in this burnout cycle of doing more and more, but feeling less and less productive. What is the next step? It's time to give people some hope at this point of the podcast. Well, I think it's like so many other things. You've got to make the decision to change, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, If you stay stuck, oftentimes it's a choice, and we can choose our way out of it. That's where it begins. All change begins with a choice. So make the choice to stop the cycle of burnout. I mean, if you've recognized, as you've listened to us talk, these symptoms, if these are recurring in your life, if they're impeding your progress, if they're decreasing the quality of your life, make the choice to stop the cycle of burnout. You got to face the ugly reality of your situation. And I don't know how else to say it, but that's where it begins. Right. It has got to come to the place where it's no longer acceptable. Yep. Now, is what you're doing working? That's a question I would start with. Well, and in case you just go to a really easy yes on this one, you might ask the people in your life who are closest Hello. to you. Hello. Yes. So true. If it is true that it's working, I mean, you know, that is for some people, yeah. right? Great. Awesome. If not, find out where your weak spots are and decide you're going to change. And a great place to begin is to assess your current level of productivity and life satisfaction. And my free assessment will show you where your areas of strength are and where you can grow. I love this because it kind of gives you a roadmap to improving. So you don't stay stuck with just being discouraged that you're not where you want to be. You know exactly where to focus to make the most meaningful improvements in your life. And uh, people can find the personal productivity assessment at freetofocus.com slash assessment. Mm -hmm. And again, this is a tool that I use and our top clients use every single quarter, because we want to know if we're making progress, right? Right. And we don't want to drift back into that level where we're working hard, working frantically, but actually achieving less. Mm -hmm. So today we've talked about productivity and the fallacy that working more automatically brings greater rewards. Our tendency to overwork simply results in missed opportunities, greater stress, and decreased job satisfaction. Not exactly... A winning sales pitch. (laughs) (laughs) So as we come in for a landing, I just want to remind you that you can take the free personal productivity assessment of your current productivity level at freetofocus.com slash assessment. That's freetofocus.com slash assessment. Dad, do you have any final thoughts for us today? Yeah, I do. I just want to encourage people to imagine a different reality. Yeah. That they don't have to live a life where they're overwhelmed, where they're frustrated, where they're burnt out. Mm -hmm. And I think it uh, it begins with imagining that different reality, which for many people, they may have to suspend disbelief. Yes. Because I know a lot of people that think they're kind of consigned to this, Mm -hmm. that nothing can ever be different, but it's really a matter of the tools. And we're going to start talking about these tools in the next episode of this podcast, where we talk about the time-energy paradox. Mm -hmm. And that's going to make a huge difference for people. Can't wait to get into that. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can get the show notes and a full transcript online at leadto.win. Thanks again for joining us on Lead to Win. If you like this show, please don't keep it to yourself. (laughs) Tell your friends and colleagues about it. And also please leave a review of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This program is copyrighted by Michael Hyatt and Company, all rights reserved. Our producer is Nick Jaworski. Our writers are Joel Miller, Lawrence Wilson, Mandy Revicio, and Jeremy Lott. Our recording engineers are Mike Boyer and Mike Burns. A couple of mics. Our production assistant is Alicia Curry. Our intern is Winston. We invite you to join us for our next episode where we'll be discussing the time-energy paradox. Until then, lead to win. 
was a painful dad joke. Couple of mics. In fact, studies routinely show that productivity goes down dramatically after fitty. In fact, 